Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the Desario Chair of Strategic Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College and your host today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today we are discussing the consumption of strategic intelligence and we welcome Ms. Karen Gibson. Karen Gibson, having recently completed a 33-year military career in which she attained the rank of Lieutenant General in the United States Army, became the Sergeant at Arms of the United States Senate on March 22, 2021. Ms. Gibson has performed in numerous intelligence and cyberspace operations roles, culminating her military service as Deputy Director of National Intelligence for National Security Partnerships. In previous assignments, she served as Director of Intelligence for United States Central Command, Director of Intelligence for Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, the Multinational Coalition to Defeat ISIS, and Deputy Commanding General for U.S. Army Cyber Command. A seasoned combat veteran, Ms. Gibson has led intelligence operations fusion centers in Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, East Africa, and in the United States. Welcome back to the United States Army War College, Karen. It's a pleasure to have you back with us. And it's a pleasure to re-engage on the issue of the consumption of strategic intelligence. Um, We had a wonderful time with you when you came to speak here in 2019 for our strategy forum on this issue. And I'm excited to develop that now. Yeah, thanks, Jen. It's great to talk to you again. I I really enjoyed that engagement with your students. It was a lot of fun. When we study intelligence, we think a lot about analysis and collection. But we don't always talk as often about the consumption of intelligence or how leaders can use it. Can you talk to us about what a leader needs to think about in order to become a wise consumer of intelligence? I think it's such a terrific topic, Jen. You know, too often um, intelligence professionals just talk to other intelligence professionals, but really intelligence is for the commander or the policymaker or the decision maker. And they have a key role in shaping the intelligence, uh, not what the results are, but in shaping what is going to be collected, what is produced. And in its, they need to play that very close role with the intelligence team or the intelligence community to ensure that that intelligence enterprise is producing the intelligence that's needed for their decision, whether we're talking about a battalion commander forward in combat operations or someone surfing, you know, at the Pentagon in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I think it all begins with, this is very foundational and doctrinal, but the priority intelligence requirements, the PIR, and we always call them the commander's PIR. They are typically developed by the two and the three. But the first thing is the intel team needs to know what you need um, to uh, progress with your strategy. And, uh, and if I could back up even further, before we develop the PIR, we kind of need to have a clear strategy in mind. So, you know, it, it needs to be straightforward what we're trying to accomplish in an area. Uh, the intelligence team, however we're going to define that, depending on echelon, needs to understand what the commander hopes to accomplish, kind of what the left and right limits are, what his or her concerns are, um, in order to 
go through the vast, you know, infinity, frankly, of information that's often available to identify that which is most essential to the commander's decisions and information needs. And it kind of starts with the PIR, but there's a lot more to it than that. So can we, can you unpack a little bit on what, where do you begin? Well, I think, okay, first, as I said, you know, you got to have a strategy and everyone needs to understand the entire team, not just the two and the three, but the entire team needs to understand what, whether it's a campaign plan, perhaps it's a theater campaign plan, perhaps it's not combat operations. Um, What is it that we're trying to accomplish? And then that strategy needs to be communicated with some frequency and, and pretty clearly. So, you know, I, I was fortunate to work with commanders who were very good about that. Um, two in particular I would highlight, and I realize now at this point as a retiree, I'm dating myself a bit, but, you know, General Dunford was one uh, as my commander, the commander of the um, International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan in, um, that would be 2012 to 13. Uh, he opened the door in his deliberations. Some commanders will go into a small room with like two or three principals and the door is shut. And, you know, eventually you see some white smoke or something and the door will open and they'll announce the decision. But General Dunford literally opened the door a little more. And, you know, colonels in key positions were allowed to backbench those discussions and listen. And, and as the person who was responsible for producing the intelligence that he required there at the ISAF headquarters. I ran the, um, the Combined Joint um, Intelligence Operations Center, CJIOC. Uh, it To hear his thinking about what he was trying to accomplish really enabled me to go back and redirect the team to produce intelligence or to collect intelligence that was most relevant um, to his needs. And so I think including the intel team or representatives of the intel team in the inner circle of the commander or the decision maker is really critical. Um, otherwise, they could just be stabbing in the dark. Um, I, My favorite echelon uh, at which to serve is really the operational level of war um, because you are so closely tied to the commander, the three and the five there. I kind of felt sorry at times for friends of mine who worked in the Beltway who never saw or interacted with the ultimate customers that they were supposedly serving. And they really lacked kind of feedback on how they were doing. You you didn't really know or understand how your intelligence information was being used. Um, and if I could step back just a bit further, because I realize, you know, at the Army War College, we're probably talking about uh people who will be going to serve at an operational or a tactical level of war. Um, that the relationship of trust and confidence between the commander, uh, and I would extend that also to the three and the five, the operations and, and plans leaders with the intel team is essential. If a commander does not trust or lacks confidence in his or her intel chief, um, that that really um, jeopardizes the entire ability of the intelligence team to provide information that the commander can readily use uh, to base his or her decisions. So I think that you raised some really interesting points here because I think we don't always understand how relational this this is, this dynamic between mm-hmm. the um, individuals producing and providing this intelligence and the commander who's receiving it and having to make decisions based on it. 
How do you develop that relationship? How do you know how to ask the right questions? Yeah. So one thing I think, actually, if we could back up even further, particularly when you have a, a new boss coming in, it's really important to understand how he or she, um, and I'll probably use the the pronoun he most of the time because I, I always work for men, that comes more naturally, um, how they receive intelligence. How do they want to receive intelligence? You know, some some commanders that I worked for, you know, they want a little read book, a little, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. They want they want a read book that they go over first thing in the morning in their hooch with a cup of coffee. Uh, others, uh, far more interactive. Um, uh, when I worked for General Steve Townsend, another one of my favorite bosses, um, he liked to sit uh, with a map in front of him, uh, flanked by analysts, and have a dialogue. Uh, about what was going on. Um, so understanding how the commander best receives intelligence is really important. Um, and again, including uh, representatives of the Intel team in those discussions. I would say it's also not enough for the commander and the intelligence team or chief to, to have a relationship, but you have to have a strong, strong relationship between Intel and ops. Because Intel should drive operations, right? And so, you know, that needs to extend throughout the entirety of your G3, J3, you know, S3 shop, uh, whether it's current operations, future ops, plans. Um, and I used to tell my teams, uh, you know, say forward in a, in a command combined joint task force or a combatant command, you know, whenever a, a three or a five rep goes somewhere, I want them asking, hey, where's my Intel partner that's coming with me? So, you know, Intel ops integration in the in the talk, uh, in the plan shop, et cetera, um, because if you don't have that access to what's happening operationally, the picture that the Intel team is trying to put together will be incomplete. And so, you know, I could share a couple of vignettes there. Some of them are, it's a little more relevant to the DC Beltway crowd, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a plethora of highly classified intelligence information that's available to Intel analysts and decision makers in DC. But what I've found is they often lack that kind of on the ground understanding that puts it in a context that makes sense. Um, I remember specifically when I was forward uh, for the defeat ISIS campaign in Iraq and Syria, and we had the 10 month uh, campaign to liberate Mosul, Operation Eagle Strike. And it was kind of early on in the actual combat phases of trying to liberate the city. And there was intelligence reporting um, from some, you know, Iraqi army elements that actually were barely in contact uh, in which, you know, they were complaining about certain things and casualties. And, and I remember then I had a kind of like a, a VTC with uh, some of the analysts back at the CIA, and they were highlighting this reporting as indicators that, you know, the Iraqi army, what it meant for the Iraqi army, how they might fall, how this one, you know, particular element was on the brink of, you know, collapse. And I said, you do realize that in our scheme of maneuver, they're like way back there, right? Like um, uh, it's actually the CT uh, forces that we've trained that are way up front and taking 10 times the casualties of this Iraqi element. Um, lacking that operational context, you had CIA analysts back in the rear who, who were reading into this report something that it didn't mean. So Again, um, not having that kind of access to what's happening on the operations side is really critical. I'll use one more, I'll, I'll provide one more example there. Um, uh, when I worked at the Director of National Intelligence, and I remember uh, sitting in a room as they were prepping the director, 
to go across the street to the White House for, you know, one of his intel updates. And uh, and one of the CT analysts highlighted a, a report. We had growing tension with Iran at that time. Uh, that, you know, Iran, it was a human report, a single human report. There were, frankly, a lot of problems with this report. But uh, the thing that really, really got me was um, that the Iran was considering deploying certain action elements to kidnap American service members in Diyala and Wasit provinces. And I couldn't believe they were briefing this to the director of national intelligence. I said, okay, aside from the fact that this is a single uncorroborated report, and it's really actually a pretty hokey scheme that's being um, proposed here, uh, you realize we haven't had any American service members in Diyala and Wasit provinces since 2011, right? So that's another example of lack of operational information uh, in that vacuum, intelligence information often does not make a lot of sense. And then the last one I'll, ta- I'll, I'll, I'll say on this one, um, Jen, and then, I'll, and then we can move on to other topics. Just a side note, you know, when you see these reports about declining morale in enemy forces, I always take those with a grain of salt. I'm sure they're true. I'm sure whatever was overheard or is being reported through human intelligence or signals intelligence is accurate. That was actually said. But I always said, you know, if we posted someone in our DFAC and had them write down everything that service members were saying as they walked through, you'd hear a lot of complaints. And that doesn't mean that our army is falling, uh, falling apart also. So just, you know, kind of read those declining morale reports sometimes with, with, a, with a grain of salt. It's just one element in the broader picture. And speaking of context and the importance of it, um, can you talk about the dangers or benefits of raw intelligence? Well, yeah. So I think I think I would be very cautious about, and when I say raw intelligence, I mean like a single human report, a single signet report, a single image. And, and I think generally um, commanders, particularly at higher levels, are better served by receiving um, more all-source or finished intelligence um, that provides analytic context. So it's fine to actually, there's some amazing images that are available, whether it's from our own collection or the National Geospatial Agency or someone. And those are great as long as they come with analytic context. You know, this is what this means. Um, To just provide, you know, uh, raw reports and make a commander try to make sense of them, I think is, um, is really abdicating our responsibilities as intelligence professionals. So, you know, for instance, um, uh, and this is one I mentioned when I was up at Carlisle talking to your students, uh, when I was at U.S. Central Command, the CIA would come in like every week or two with big stack of what I'm going to call, you know, raw intelligence. They were just a, a stream of highly classified human reports uh, saying, you know, Hekmatullah said this, and then the next one says Hekmatullah said that. Uh, this one would say, you know, General Bajwa is going to do this. As another one would say, General Bajwa is going to do that. They would contradict one another. I didn't understand what the sources were, you know, how credible they were. Is there corroborating evidence? It was just a stack of reports. And, and, you know, with a lot of the same names, hard to follow. What I really would like to have done was give them to a group of analysts who are expert in that area, have them read them all, and then tell me what it means. And I'd be like, why? Why do you give me these these reports that are so difficult to make sense of in a lack of, of analytic context? And they would explain, well, you know, we're giving these to you because we're going to give them to General Botel uh, this afternoon. And I'd say, why? Why are you giving them to him? Why are you subjecting him to this? 
well, we're going to give them to him because the secretary is going to see him tomorrow. And I said, why, why are we giving these to the secretary? That just really bothers me to see uh, reports without an analytic context that are provided to a commander and to make him be his own analyst. Um, there are, I, I've especially, seemed especially bad sometimes the higher the classification of the of the Intel report, there's this strange perception that it must be super sexy. And sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. And uh, and and I think people just want to be in the know. There's kind of a fear that other leaders have access to this information and they haven't seen it. So occasionally you'll meet people who insist on seeing all this raw intelligence. I was lucky generally not to work for commanders like that. And I specifically, you know, the example I used up at Carlisle, uh, General Townsend, again, he didn't, he didn't, he had no time for that. You know, he saw that as that's your job to you, you read that stuff and you tell me what it means. And once a very long, uh, unanalyzed signet report made it into his read book, made it past me. I don't know what, maybe it was doing PT that morning. And, uh, and it came back to me with handwritten note from him. Don't ever do this to me again. And, uh, and I really appreciate that because, um, it is, it is our job as intelligence professionals to provide that analytic context. And so what, and so, you know, my tip then for commanders is insist on meaningful, relevant intelligence. When you get something, uh, particularly if it lacks that context, ask those so what questions. What does this mean to me? Why do I need to know this? And in particular, what I found useful is if you can phrase it in terms of risk and opportunity to, to the plan, to, you know, the campaign plan, whatever it is, what does this mean to me, what does this mean to our campaign? What does it mean to our strategy? If, if true, you know, how should we be preparing for this? Um, if uh, what what kinds of opportunities might there be in this? Advantages that we could have, um, but just really insist on a little analytic rigor that comes along with the products in your book. I think there's a really interesting piece here too that I've always been interested in in, in terms of the consumption and production relationship and that's how to deal with dissent. Mm, yes. Yes. Um, so I think, I think there's a question of, you know, who's dissent, right? And there are many ways to view the same piece of information at times, right? And so, you know, I would back up and say, I'll get to the dissent piece in a second, but it's really important to engage with analysts, you know, to provide them feedback, challenge their assumptions, ask some hard questions, you know, about, the veracity of the source. Uh, is it corroborated? You know, is this consistent with what we've seen historically? What would make you see things otherwise? Are there optional ways to view this or to read this? And so, you know, asking those challenging questions. But um, when, when intelligence reports are written that a commander disagrees with or doesn't want to see, you know, gosh, we could talk about that for a long time. There's several ways to look at it. One, if it's your own team that's writing something that that you that seems untrue to you, um, I would, I think, question how closely integrated are my Intel and ops teams? Does my Intel team have enough access to um, information about what's 
occurring on the battlefield, to put this in the right context. I have had, you know, commanders who came back, uh, for instance, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, General Sir Nick Carter, uh, later the chief of defense forces in the UK, but at the time he was our deputy, he would he would look at uh, products that some of my analysts had put together and say, well, that's not what Ghani told me. Uh, or um, because he had direct access to some of the senior Afghan officials that we were you know, collecting on, writing about, analyzing. Or he would come back from a trip, say, to Islamabad and take the time to sit down with the analysts who had helped to prepare him and talk to them about what he had seen, about his observations, to help provide some of that operational context. So I think access to battlefield circulation information is really critical for the intel team. So if a commander sees something that just doesn't make sense uh, or is inconsistent with his own you know, views of how, how the fight is going, um, that, that could be one cause, is that perhaps the intel team is too disconnected from operations, and that's something to look at. But the other thing, and I think this is perhaps more of what you're getting at, Jen, is when a commander doesn't like what he's hearing. And so uh, if I could pause for a second and go way back uh, and tell a story, you know, before I went to Afghanistan, I did the round of all the agencies in D.C., as most intel seniors do. And was told I would hear a range, a broad range of options um, or a broad range of views. And at the time you had the CIA that was convinced that the Afghan National Security Forces were doomed to failure. And then you had the folks down in Tampa. I wasn't at CENTCOM yet, uh, who, you know, thought it was all sunshine and light or that's kind of how they depicted it. And, um, and we're predicting that things were going to go really, really well. It was fascinating to see how um, two different teams could view the same intelligence information in two different ways. But I got downrange and it was uh, shortly after General Petraeus had left as the commander there. And he had was kind of unprecedented written a, a, a dissent uh, I mean, certainly his intel team did most of the drafting at, at his guidance and direction. He had a strong hand in it, but it was his name on it, uh, that dissented with a national intelligence estimate on Afghanistan. And so because there was just this strong disagreement. And um, and when I got down there, I felt like we were spending, in my opinion, an inordinate amount of time writing dissents. It had become a habit of writing dissents uh, with CIA pieces um, that depicted the war as not going as well as the commanders in theater thought it was. Now, personally, I thought it was not necessarily the best use of our time. I really thought we should be focusing on our own on our own production. But I have later in other situations seen commanders, say in Iraq or Syria, who, you know, encouraged their team to produce intelligence reports uh, that would be positive. That's very, very dangerous. Uh, or who would uh, again, spend a lot of time working to refute or disprove information that was coming out of the CIA about how things were going in their area. And I think a root cause of this is when commanders start to see the intelligence not as a tool to help them aid their decision making, but as a report card on their own performance. And it's hard, hard to avoid that. It can be because it's kind of human nature. And we are absolutely committed, you know, in the military to this victory or success. And it can be difficult to read intelligence information that depicts things as not going well. And, um, and I have seen 
commanders who are great about accepting and understanding that. Frankly, I thought uh, General Scotty Miller was terrific at viewing this very objectively and saying, how can we use this information? I have seen other commanders who I think had lost their objectivity and had really begun to take that kind of information personally. And the danger there, uh, there are several. One, you know, wasting the time of your intel team on trying to refute, disprove, whatever. But really more pernicious is the potential politicization or coloring of intelligence information. Politicization is such a fascinating topic. I think it, it can happen in so many different ways. Can you can you talk address that a little bit? Yeah, I think one, it's it. I, I really don't think it's ever intentional, right? It 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 it's pernicious and it kind of sneaks in. And and I think uh, you know you may have I have encountered analysts who at times I think have have perhaps lost objectivity and can only see things one way, particularly if they've been studying a problem for a really, really, really long time, say in Pakistan or Iran. Again, all my examples are, are in the CENTCOM AOR because that's mostly where I serve, but, you know, who just cannot, cannot believe that, you know, something might be happening differently, which is danger in and of itself. But I think it has its roots in people trying to really please the commander. Um, it is. I, I would. I would caution commanders, uh, or threes, or fives, or whomever leaders in the field to be careful about how you deal with news that you don't like. You know that screamer, uh, the person that blows up, the person that shoots the messenger. I've certainly seen not only where people become reluctant to um, deliver bad news in the intel arena, where they don't want to deliver bad news in the ops arena either. Uh, and so a commander who does not handle bad news well is someone who over time his staff will perhaps stop consciously or unconsciously providing him with the entire picture. And so I think this politicization, again, it's not, it's not a blatant conscious thing, but um, it, there, there becomes a sort of a sense or a pressure of, you know, we need to be doing well. And, and it can, over time, I think, influence the way that the, the conclusions or assessments that are made um, by the intelligence team. And again, that's, that's very dangerous. It's a very interesting set of points. Also, very interested in the sources uh, commanders should rely on. Yes, yes, that's a great that's a great point. I um I think that commanders should insist on multiple viewpoints and intelligence from other sources. If in your read book every page that's in there has the logo of your own intel team, I would question that. Um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I've seen places where people think that everything has to have their own logo on it, and a lot of time is wasted reproducing the work of others. Um, but, but it's really important to expose yourself to different ideas and perspectives. And so, you know, insisting that you're getting intelligence reporting from various agencies or even at times um, from from other countries. Uh, and don't, I guess we could get to open source in a minute, don't discount uh, unclassified information, uh, open source information. But, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of using coalition intelligence um, in, in a commander's uh, daily work to help under, inform his or her assessment of what's happening. You know, some of our allies have exquisite cameras on their aircraft uh, and not just the five ice partners. You know, uh, we made great use of, of German cameras, of French cameras, of Dutch cameras when I was um, at Operation Inherent Resolve. 
Um, some of our allies have access to better sources on the ground than we have. Um, I had put great value in information and in a partnership with my counterpart in um, the Kingdom of Jordan, because uh, while they may not have the exquisite collection from space that we have, or you know, the power of the National Security Agency, their depth of understanding of tribal dynamics and what's happening on the ground in southern Syria is something that we will never have on our own. And so, you know, being able to tap into that expertise, you know, don't don't adopt a it has to be invented here kind of um, mentality. And so uh, accepting intelligence that comes from other nations, uh, I would expect the intel team that's providing it to you, just as I talked about with raw intelligence, that they're providing some analytic context, you know, uh, agree with this uh, or, you know, perhaps this aspect of, you know, this um, assessment is a little too rosy or um, maybe they're being a little harsh here, you know, highlight where you may or may not entirely agree, but providing the boss with those alternate views, I think is really important. You made a great point when you were here speaking in 2019 to, to our students, when you said, keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I uh, we of course understand that exhortation, but how do you go about doing that? Yeah. So it, it can be hard, but you've got to keep an open mind because, you know, we all say the, no plan survives, you know, first contact with the enemy. Um, unexpected things could occur on the battlefield. And if your mind is wedded that things are going to unfold in, in a certain way, you may fail to see the indicators that things are not going as you Plans, you know, perhaps uh, in another form, we could talk about Afghanistan and and in certain ways along that. Um, you will miss certain signals that are important, or you could fail to see opportunities that you could take advantage of. So you've got to keep an open mind. And I think, you know, how do you, to your question of how do you do that? One, you know, insisting on those multiple viewpoints, on intelligence from other sources, and and on understanding how our partners and allies see things as part of that. And also, you know, having that open, challenging dialogue with analysts. And, you know, when I say challenging dialogue, don't challenge them to the extent that it shuts everybody down. There's an art to it. Um, but, you know, having having uh, a challenging dialogue with your analysts. Uh, I, another thing that I loved about working with um, General Dunford, as busy as he was as the four-star commander in Afghanistan, he took an hour a week to come to the skiff and sit down with analysts and have a dialogue on important topics. And I know we got as much out of that as he did, because again, it helped us understand what he was thinking about, what his concerns were, where the campaign was headed. And it helped us uh, as we are troving through all of the information that's out there available to feed him in his read book each day to highlight that which was most important to him. But it it really, I think, helped um, helped all of us. So I think when we're looking at intelligence and how we, we convey it to others, we there's a cultural piece to it. Institutional culture can affect communication, can affect how readily received information is, um, and all of the other things we've been talking about. What cultural differences do you see? How do they affect communication and understanding of intelligence? And this, by this, I mean the relationship between civilians and the military, across the range of agencies, different expertises. Wow, that is a great question, Jen. And, and I'm sorry, it's not one I've thought about a lot. Um, I think what I've seen in terms of differences 
uh, for a, that affect communication and understanding of intelligence. I think less for me a difference between how civilians or military might see it or how different services or agencies. I in interacting with a commander or decision maker, um, I think there's a distinct difference between those who have extensive operational experience and those who are new to the game, so to speak. And um, and regardless of service, those who've been who have strong operational experience tend to engage their teams in very meaningful ways. Some of the things we've talked about, you know, making clear your requirements, uh, having a clear strategy, communicating it regularly, asking the right questions, establishing this strong personal relationship uh, with the team. Um, I, I can I can tell as opposed to others who are new, you know, perhaps it's a their first operational deployment. Uh, perhaps it's someone who's worked in the institutional military more than in the operational military who um, tend not to have acquired those skills. Um, and in my opinion, the most successful combat commanders are those who wisely leverage their intel teams. Um, and that's a distinct, I mean, I guess you could call it a cultural difference, but I, perhaps it's more of an experiential difference. But um, when I think about people that I've worked with and how they've handled their intel team differently, um, it's as much as anything a mark of, of skill and experience and less where they came from and whether they were civilian or military or from a specific agency, if that makes sense. So I think we're seeing some really interesting things. I mean, these are, these are just great really illustrative comments. Um, and we're seeing, I, I would argue, an inflection point now with intelligence in the war in Ukraine. Um, we're seeing the public use of intelligence, strategic declassification, greater number of players, social social media, more private sector, all of these different things. Um, I would love to hear your, your take on where we stand now with intelligence in, in Ukraine war. And also, do you, if you see a better intelligence sharing with allies. Yeah. I think it's I think that in this war, um, I think it's been there's been a brilliant use of intelligence in the public sphere. And and it is a marked difference um, between uh, the way I have seen intelligence protected in decades past. You know, intelligence is something sometimes uh, sort of a zero day thing. You know, once I once I reveal this, I I may not have this this source anymore, but but ultimately you've got to use it in some way, right? And, and a use of intelligence information, you know, in weighing that risk of perhaps giving up a sensitive source uh, for future use um, has been the way that the administration early on used intelligence information, I believe after collaborating with some of our closest allies, like say for instance, the Brits, to, to reveal in advance what Vladimir Putin was gonna do. We don't usually do that. We usually you know, keep that to ourselves. We don't want our adversary to know that we know what he's about to do. But by publicly revealing in advance what Putin had planned, um, removing that veneer of legitimacy that he'd been trying to build. Um, and I think it's been used quite brilliantly. I've you know, stayed in touch with folks who are serving in, in Poland or elsewhere in Europe supporting the Ukrainians, and it's stunning um, the way that we have made intelligence information available to partners 
um, in ways that we did not previously. And I think that's really, really important. Keeping everything to ourselves all the time or highly classifying it is not particularly useful. Um, uh, you know, sometimes with highly classified programs, I realize we're kind of off the Ukraine question now, but um, highly classified programs I've seen where they read on like, say, two people, right, at the command, the commander and the deputy. And I go, well, how's he going to use that information? I mean, he, you know, uh, it's it's got to be something that you're sharing more broadly with the staff so that we can we can make use of this. So um, the overclassification of intelligence information um, can be a real problem. But I think it's been really brilliant. The uh, downgrading, declassification, and and better use and application of intelligence in Ukraine, and in particular with our allies. And so I think another reason that it's so critically important to share intelligence information with our partners um, is that it allows us to plan and operate together. And too often I've seen um, downrange where all the intelligence information or the bulk of the intelligence information was kept at U.S. only or perhaps at Five Eyes. And what happens is if that's all you're producing, then that's all that ends up in the hands of the planners. But it's often a combined operation. And if you aren't creating and producing intelligence information that your combined planning team can use, then your planning team's going to wither down to or shrink, shrink down to um, just a Five Eyes or U.S. only element. And in that case, you're not making full use of the capacity that your coalition partners are bringing. Um, and you're not exposing yourself uh, to those broader viewpoints that we've talked about. And I think um, it's really important and it really has to start with the Intel team on producing intelligence information that can be shared with your partners. Uh, you know, when I worked for, for General Townsend in Iraq and Syria, he insisted that nothing be U.S. only or Five Eyes. And sometimes that's really hard. Uh, back to, you know, how can you as the commander shape or, or influence the intelligence information that's being used um, in that campaign? He insisted and he said, don't ever brief me no one. And he insisted on having coalition officers brief him. And it's really important to do that. And it's much easier to get it done when that insistence is coming from the top. But it's, it's critically important to the success of a coalition effort, I think, to have intelligence products that are underlying combined plans when those intelligence products um, are also classified at a combined level. So we're seeing these increasing, um, I would say, players in this sphere. Um, there's been arguments lately that the, there's an increasing democratization of intelligence, mm. um, wider number of stakeholders, um, and that, that that is changing. Is changing the dynamic. Um, I see two parts of that. I would love if you comment on. Do are we actually seeing democratization of intelligence? As one question, and two, how does the intelligence community deal with these massive volumes of information? Yeah, so those are two separate but distinct and related issues. I think, Jen. One, absolutely, I think there's a democratization of intelligence. You know, you can pick up uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and and read all kinds of things that were formerly the province solely of you know, government programs. And in large part, that's due to the increased quality of commercial imagery uh, that is available. You know, it doesn't have to come from, it's no longer that exquisite collection from space is no longer a monopoly that the U.S. government has. 
the presence of journalists all over the world who can tweet or send out information, often from places and countries where we don't have uh, a footprint. Um, you know, look at the coverage, for instance, of protest movements in Iran. Um, as well as uh, just this vast quantity of open source information. So I think the government and the intelligence community have to acknowledge that they no longer have this monopoly on exquisite collection or even on analytic means of dealing with vast quantities of information. And, and it's almost, I think, a kind of existential question that the intelligence community should ask itself. Are we about are we solely or principally or primarily about exquisite collection that can't getting information that can't be acquired in, other, in any other means? Or are we about looking at this information, regardless of where it comes from, and delivering value um, by helping to infer knowledge from a vast quantity of information, regardless of where it comes from, uh, commercial, unclassified, or you know, exquisite technical collection of some kind. And that kind of gets to the question of the vast volume of information that's available. Uh, I used to say, you know, we've got an infinity of data, uh, essentially, because as long as it's more than you can, you're you're sucking up more than you can process. You're processing more than you can analyze, you're analyzing more than you can write on, you're putting more potential pages in a read book than any commander or intel chief could ever read and digest, well, it may as well be infinite. And, uh, and in, in Iraq, I felt like I was looking for a needle in a haystack of needles. You know, we had terabytes of data that were coming off the battlefield, whether that was in captured enemy cell phones, whether that was um, just all the stuff that was coming out of, say, Mosul. You know, how do you deal with that infinity of information? Uh, it's a tough, tough problem. Um, but I think there are some areas where the intelligence community is beginning to make strides, but we still actually lag behind the commercial world. For instance, with the commercialization and commercial analytic techniques, think of like ad tech or, you know, all the ways that purveyors of commercial information can learn things about us based on what we do on the Internet. We don't necessarily have the same tools uh, in the military or in the intelligence community that are available, you know, even on your personal cell phone. I used to another one I used to joke when I was you know, in Iraq and Syria, I'd say. I could take a picture in the in the in the chow hall and go back to my room and a little square would appear above your face and it would say, is this Dr. Jen Lester? And I'd say, why, yes, it is. But I didn't have that same capability to go through all the videos that were on all of the you know captured cell phones to see, is this Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? Um, so there's tremendous space still for greater partnership with uh, the commercial and, and private sector to try to adopt uh, some of those things. And those are there's there are entities like the um, uh, Joint Artificial Intelligence Center and others that are working that hard. And I know that a lot of progress has been made, but we still have considerable catching up to do. So thank you. Um, and thanks for all of these comments on uh, this just fascinating approach to uh, the consumption of intelligence. I just want to turn to your current position for, for a moment, um, you became the Senate Sergeant of Arms in March of 2021, an interesting time period. Uh, can you give us a few comments on the job or the, the issues you're dealing with or just anything you can share with us? Yeah. Well, at first, I'd say I never thought I would end up in the legislative branch. Uh, you know, as a career soldier, 33 years in the Army, DOD, the executive branch, I never imagined myself working on Capitol Hill. Um, but it is an honor. 
And, and it is really a pleasure. I, I do enjoy it. And it reminds me of some of my, my most satisfying jobs in, in the army. In particular, it's, it reminds me of command. I, I don't get to do all the Intel stuff that I did as a J2. Um, I, I would just say briefly, you know, most folks don't know what the Senate Sergeant at Arms does. I certainly didn't before January 6th. Uh, 2021. The first, the very first sergeant at arms was James Mathers, and, and he was appointed in 1789, the same year that George Washington became president. Uh, since then, I think we've had 46 presidents, and I'm the 42nd sergeant at arms. James Mather had three jobs. One was watch the door. Uh, the other was uh, take care of the horses. Uh, I am responsible for the vehicle motor fleet. Um, and the third was to acquire firewood. And we do actually still acquire firewood for the historic fireplaces in the Capitol. But the job has expanded considerably. And frankly, it's like running a support group uh, for the Senate. So everything from the custodians and the parking lot attendants to the media, the cameras, protocol, um, uh, IT, uh, cybersecurity, 425 state offices uh, around the country. I manage the leases in you know, Miami and Atlanta and Chicago and anywhere that a senator has an office, um, but also responsible for security. I am the senior law enforcement official for the Senate. And so I have everything from emergency preparedness, life safety to continuity of government uh, programs. You know, How do we ensure that we have uh, it, that the legislative branch and specifically the U.S. Senate is fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities um, in enduring constitutional government in the greatest threats that we might face. So it is both a very tactical uh, job as you deal with, you know, whatever unexpected incident occurs on the grounds each day, as well as strategic, say, for instance, working with the Department of Defense to identify what kind of strat air needs we might have uh, in the event of a, a crisis of government. But at the end of the day, it is just really satisfying to lead um, men and women, as in the Army, men and women who are focused on a common purpose to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. I was surprised to find that it is an identical oath that I took in this job uh, to the one that I took as, a, as an Army officer. And frankly, uh, many days, I feel I am more heavily engaged in that supporting uh, the Constitution of the United States than than I did in some of my army jobs. So it's um, it's deeply satisfying uh, and it's a tremendous honor. Thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. It's really truly been a pleasure to re-engage on these issues. And um, thank you so much for educating our our students and faculty, all of us, on these really crucial matters. And I think it's it's wonderful to, to see the breadth of your service. So thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs and send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you've subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Genevieve Lester. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.